it's a minefield. It's tricky just to sort of then try to do the right thing. You try to do the right thing and then, you know, half the people applauded and half the people suddenly are protesting outside your your doorstep. So it's a really complicated world. And, and in a world where we're connected and where there are places like Twitter, handling something incorrectly will cost you business and, you know, stock value overnight. And when there is no vision, the people perish. We choose to go to the moon. If today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I am about to do today? Change will not come if we wait for some other person or if we wait for some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. Welcome to the Strategy Skills Podcast, where strategy partners teach you the tools and techniques to solve mankind's greatest problems. Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Hattie, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Uh, Thank you. It's great to be here. So there's many things we can talk about. You've had a great career, but I want to start with, it's the 100th anniversary of the Harvard Business Review. How has the mission of the Harvard Business Review changed since its founding? Well, the mission was very clear at the time of the founding. So this is 1922, 100 years ago. Um, You know, business was starting to take off in a more industrial, more organized way. And the guy who was the dean of the Harvard Business School at that time, Wallace Donham, created this magazine. And he really thought that there needed to be a theory of business. Yes. That that business, it was haphazard and just going all over the place. And he even used the term in our original issue where he said, you know, without it, for most people, business would be a pathetic gamble. Okay. So, <laughs> so he really believed you had to, you know, you had to come up with the theories. Um, so it was very, very idealistic. Um, you know, how has it changed? In some ways, not at all. We still believe that research-based ideas, you yes. know, tested, tested by research or tested in the workplace can be hugely valuable in helping us run institutions more effectively. Um, so in some ways, the mission is the same, although the world of business has changed since then. The ideas that we publish, you know, everything has changed, but at the core is still that belief that by paying attention to what you do, you can run businesses, you can run institutions more more effectively. So the core of the mission hasn't changed. It's just the way you go about fulfilling it. Well, yes. I mean, so once upon a time, the only thing we produced that people knew about were long form, you know, 12 page articles. Everything was was practically an academic piece. Now, those pieces are still in some ways the most important things we do. You know, they're the ones that uh, appear in print. Uh, We still have print. Um, And, you know, they they hopefully will define or redefine a certain area, whether it's strategy or marketing or thinking about DEI or thinking about sustainability, 
will provide insight that will last for some time. But now we do so much else. I mean, we're primarily a digital publisher. We're you know, yes. like everyone else. We're 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 across all the platforms, and and redefining value is not necessarily long. Uh, little short spurts. We're on TikTok. You know. Graphics that there are various ways to convey information that will be valuable for people at work. So that's part of what's changed is just how is the expectations of an audience and our attempts to meet that. Yeah, I mean, while a lot has been said about the Harvard Business Review, not much has been said or credit given to the digital transformation you've made. Because I do remember the time when most of the pieces were long form, and now it's definitely more accessible than it was maybe even 15 years ago. I hope that's true. I mean, look, the the challenge is um, we have we have a great core of fans. We have a really yes. devoted audience, and it's it's thrilling. But then there are lots of people out there who just have just have no connection to the brand, and and would imagine that we're overly academic, or too hard, or too boring, or something like that. And you know, we're writing about how people interact. We're writing about how how businesses operate, and that that once you put it in those terms, that touches almost everybody in the world. So um, the goal is to make it more accessible, to get HBR content in front of people where they say, oh, this is actually, this is my life you're talking about. Um, so that's a constant challenge. And you want to do that without without blowing the brand, without dumbing it down. But so that's been that's been what we've worked at for the last 10 years. And I, you know, I think so far, so good. Well, between, I think it was 1994, in 1997, all I ever read was The Economist and Time magazine. Did you know that? I mean, that's a scary statistic. It's the only two publications I read for four years. So coming in from Time magazine, so you were one of the senior editors, I think second most senior editor at Time magazine, and you moved into HBR. What was the transition like? What was the imprint or the style you brought into the HBR? Uh, I think, you know, I was an unusual choice in some ways, but the CEO at that time, David Wan, he sort of got that for HBR to succeed, he needed an editor, an editing team that was more consumer focused, that was more yeah. reader focused and not author focused and not, you know, academia focused. Yes. So, so once, you know, if he's thinking that way, then somebody with my background, somebody with my experience in metabolism can help. You know, again, you don't want to blow the franchise and you don't yes. want to turn HBR into Time Magazine. I mean, I remember some of my first meetings with the staff just saying, hey, you know, we can be faster. Time Magazine, we used to create the entire magazine in a week. And I'd be very excited. And I would look at the faces yeah. around the room and they were not impressed. They're like, yeah. And at the end you of the day- You just scared them in that first meeting. Yeah. At the end of the day, you got Time Magazine, you know, which was not a compliment from them. So so it was really a matter of, all right, so how do you change the metabolism, metabolism but still protect what is unique and special about about this publication. Um, you know, what do I miss? I miss, look at time you'd sit down, there'd be the morning meeting and you'd talk about what's happening in Chinese politics and the new show on Broadway and, you know, how are the Yankees doing? And, you know, so there's this, yeah. this broad sort of global thing. HBR obviously is far narrower, you know, it's a sort of niche thing, but I mean, the, the history of magazines has shown you probably want a niche. I mean, that's it, it's you know, unless you're the New York Times and a couple others, it's yeah. tough to be big and broad and comprehensive and be successful. Better to be a little smaller but have this devoted audience that that loves what you do. 
Yes, I think you guys have done a very good job because at one point I canceled my subscription to the Harvard Business Review and then I came back when I saw some of the changes being made. Oh yeah, we saw that. We we saw what you were doing. <laughs> I particularly liked the the theme of the big idea that resonated with me because you had a theme and you had varying viewpoints built around that, which I hadn't seen much of. So clearly you guys are doing many good things if you're bringing back some of the old audience members. So switching gears a little bit, when you were at the Wall Street Journal, you served as Beijing bureau chief and then Moscow bureau chief. Given the fact that Russia and China is in the news pretty much all the time, do you feel that perspective has helped you in terms of positioning the HBR and so on? Has it given you any advantage? Well, it was very sad that when Russia invaded Ukraine, I mean, first of all, that was yes. catastrophically sad. Um, we had a partner, we had a Russian language edition and a partner who who we liked a lot and a whole team that we really that we really liked. And they were not in any way part of Putin's machine. And in yes. fact, they were they really represented the opposite values. But it just it just became impossible you know, the logic of sanctions is blunt and it's just, it's just not possible to say, well, we're going to keep this line of business going because yes. we're doing business with good guys because it's just not possible. And, and, uh, and I was sad about that. So, so, I mean, I think an understanding of how the world works informed that decision. It was a difficult decision. So we don't have a Russian language edition, at least currently. It's it's you know at the very least it's it's being frozen. In China, I, I mean, you know, it, it's this is a tough time in, yes. in U.S. Chinese relations. Um, you know, I was in China in the '80s. I was there during Tiananmen. I really saw what you know. A, a, a government can do that is horrible um, and deplorable and, you know, sick. Um, you know, that said, there are, you know, China is not just its government, it's not yes. just its politics. And oh, there awesome. are a lot of, one, you know, wonderful people in China, brilliant business minds. Um, so I'm one of those people who thinks it's important to keep you know, that smart people in the US and China are engaging and engaging in whatever areas they can. Look, there'll be a period where, you know, Xi Jinping won't be around, you know, there'll be different imperatives. Our system will evolve, our US administrations will evolve. So, you know, they'll just, there'll be opportunities. I really believe in keeping the connection. So we have a Chinese edition and we're, yeah. you know, we want to expand in China and we want to connect and we want to write about, you know, brilliant business people in China who might have lessons for the rest of the world. So, so maybe my take is just that, you know, it, it's a long process. It, it, things can change and let's just, let's just keep connected in some way. So you encourage engagement, distinguish between the people and the government and understand that things are evolving and we shouldn't make rash judgment calls. Yeah. And, and maybe around. that's overly optimistic. You know, maybe, you know, you can say that. And then there's a point where, like with Russia, you just you can't continue. But I, yeah. I guess I'm more optimistic that there there is important common ground, even if it's on issues like, you know, sustainability or something like yeah. that, um, or just pure business where the two sides can can keep open channels, even when the political channels are, are not friendly. So switching gears, yeah, you've seen obviously many articles that have come up. What takes an idea? I remember when Michael Porter published his piece on competitive advantage and competitive strategy. That took on a life of its own. What makes an idea enduring, in your opinion? 
Yeah, we've thought a lot about this as part of this anniversary. We, you know, we put together a book, HBR at 100, that um, we pulled out what we thought that were the most influential articles from our first century. And it's hard to boil that down and say, well, it's ideas that are relatively simple or ideas yeah. that, you know. Um, but you're right. I mean, I mean, you know, Porter's Five Forces, it's not the only way strategy is taught. And there's some yeah. who who think there's some flaws in the argument, but it basically is the bedrock of strategic thinking and, and strategic t teaching, you know, many, many, many decades later. Um, I mean, I think in that case, it was just a framework that was was new and was valuable. I mean, if you look at early HBR hundred years ago, we weren't writing about strategy. Yeah, I remember you know, that. The, the strategy, well, I'm talking about hundred years ago, and but, but, but yeah, but even later, I mean, that the strategy sort of had its moment, you know, mm -hmm. maybe, somewhere midway through our life when suddenly that was a discipline that you know needed the sort of business theory I was talking about and and Porter just delivered what was missing which was kind of the great framework that that could be adopted so I, so sometimes it's just it's just answering a need even if it's not clear that yeah. the deed is there but she's just sort of discern it um you know, but uh, I, I mean, one of the most interesting things, I, I mean, we could get off on a long tangent about this, but, you know, the article that we we published by Michael Jensen, um, yes. uh, Eclipse of the Public Corporation, then 1989, and Jensen and, and others had already written about the same idea, which was shareholder primacy, you know, that the interests of shareholders yeah. Were, that managers couldn't worry about everything, so worry about this. Maximize shareholder value, and that will sort of take care of, of everything else. So that's an idea that was relatively simple. You know, I mean, the articles weren't simple, and the theory, the agency theory that was behind it is not simple, but in a sense, it 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 was a relatively clean approach that if this is, if managers are, are focused on that, it aligns them with ownership and you know, if you reward them with stock and stock options, that there's just this alignment with the owners, the shareholders, the managers. And, you know, there was nothing absolute about this, but it just fed into the Reagan era and, you know, yeah. Milton Friedman. And, it's and right for its time. It was, it was right for its time and it had the simplicity. And, you know, by after decades, I think CEOs thought they were legally required or their fiduciary duty required them to maximize shareholder value, and they interpreted that as maximizing short-term shareholder value. The law says nothing of the kind. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, yes, that responsibility to shareholders, but it doesn't mean every quarter right on the dot, but that became kind of a fad, a trend yeah. that took root for 50 years. And and we're it, it, I think we're reinventing where we're going right now, but talk about the power of an idea. Yeah, that's just it. An idea can be right for its time, but it's used beyond its time. Yeah, I think that's right. And I don't know. And and honestly, we're sort of, so you can say, okay, well, now you want stakeholder value. Well, that's mm -hmm. great. And, and think about all your stakeholders. But, you know, what does that mean? And, and can there be a theory that sort of brings that together other than just, well, I think a little of this, a little of that. I don't know if there can be. It hasn't been created. It hasn't been written. But I hope, but I know some of our authors are, 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 trying to figure out how do you create a piece that's as influential as the Jensen piece for the next several decades that that that's about stakeholder capitalism. So I was reading in the Wall Street Journal this morning that uh, Larry Fink has been called on to resign. So with all the talk around ESG, do you think there's a backlash towards the ESG movement or the way it's being executed? 
So ESG as a term probably has to disappear because it is a lightning rod. I mean, there are people who think it's quote unquote woke to even think about ESG, you know, and 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 Fink and others get criticism for th that they're somehow sacrificing returns and capitalism yeah. to worry about this. But then on the other side, you know, people who are are more in the kind of activist sustainability camp who think ESG is baloney. It's not really measuring yeah. whether a company is sustainable. So it, it it's a it's a term that nobody likes or nobody yeah. nobody trusts. True. So you know, that said, so yes, Larry Fink has a, you know, he has an activist shareholder now, you know, I, he can't win. He, he's in, he's been trying to walk this fine line and, and it, it's just difficult and no, you know, nobody quite respects what he's doing, which might mean he's doing a great job because everybody's mad at him. I mean, he, you know, he controls more assets than anybody else. And he's tried to move the needle, at least in the conversation toward long-termism, toward sustainability. You know, it, it's, it, it's been an interesting thing. And a lot of people have have rewarded him for doing that, while at the same time criticizing criticizing him for talking about it more than actually doing anything about it, because his portfolio of companies is still spread evenly among you know everybody. So it's not, you know there aren't really he's not really pulling out of these investments that he's saying he yes. doesn't respect. So I don't know. I, I do think the movement is real, though. I mean, I I do think. I, you know, I don't think I, I don't think we're just going to return to shareholder value and stop caring about this stuff. And I think partly it's generational, and partly it's it's um, I don't know. It, it, you know, it, it's a real change that that even people at the top, even people who are relative, you know, who are sort of my age, get that the world deserves better than just a hyper focus on shareholder return and that a hyper-focus on shareholder return will not take care of society's problems, which I think some people thought was implicit in that deal. But ESG as a term, yeah, we need to do better than that. I mean, the problem is you, you can't measure, it's easy to measure share price. It's yeah. easy to measure total shareholder return. It's not easy to, to measure how a company contributes to pollution, what its externalities are in terms of, of of the you know the the problems yeah. and the benefits that it creates for society, so without an easy measurement, it's 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 hard to you know quantify and understand in the same way you can share price. I, I guess I I have hope and faith that we're getting better at measuring these things, um, and and that that's part of how this movement will um, will strengthen rather than weaken. Well, I think the good news is that we're having these conversations that are telling us that. ESG is maybe not working the way we wanted it to, and we need to come up with better ways of measuring it, managing it, rather than taking it at face value. So I think that's good that the conversations are taking place. Yep. So I speak with CEOs all the time, and one of the most common questions I get is, you know, Michael, tell me what are the things I need to be worrying about over the next five and 10 years? In your work with the HBR and generally with business leaders, what would you say are the big themes that you see shaping the world over the next few years? I'm glad you didn't ask the next 100 years because <laughs> that would be folly. Um, well, so so I think one is what we've just been talking about. I mean, the the kind of the reinvention of capitalism. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I was just in Europe and I was talking about this great debate between shareholder capitalism and stakeholder capitalism. It's so hard. And, you know, you, you talk to people from kind of Northern Europe, yeah. you know, from, from, from Norway. They're like, 
what? Why is this a problem? You know, they're so far ahead of us on this and have come to a place where, you know, they're 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 quite happy with a, a newly aligned balance. It's just funny and, and we're sort of struggling as if this is next to impossible. And and yes. it's harder given American history and American values. But anyway, so so yeah, so so the kind of emerging reinvention of capitalism, I think, is part of it. Um you know, the new collar idea, I mean, the, the, it's just interesting to see more and more companies are hiring in new ways, are abandoning this idea that you have to have whatever it is, you know, a yeah. college degree or whatever they thought was valuable in the past and realizing how limiting that was in terms of looking for uh, looking for candidates and how unnecessary it is in terms of looking for qualified candidates. So I think a continued re reinvention of, of how we think about talent, how we how we skill reskill talent ourselves within our companies instead of relying on some institution to have done so before um you know the kind of office versus remote versus hybrid i, I don't think we figured that out yet yeah. um i mean here, here's an interesting point i think um so a lot of us are comfortable working remotely comfortable working hybrid you know the data seem to show we're still productive that we still seem to interact in a way that adds up to company culture, whatever. Um, but so Amy Edmondson, a brilliant professor at HPS, has a hunch. This is not based on research, but yeah. a hunch that part of that is, you know, we we have this reservoir of goodwill uh, or, or, or corporate glue or something like that that got us through these past couple of years of remote work because we had a history of, you know, kind of, uh, uh, inter interaction, like a physical credit. interaction. We had a credit. Yes, and 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 that that's dissipating, and that that is going to lose. So so that at a certain point we're going to use up that that reservoir that's gotten us through, that's propelled us through these past few years, and that then it's going to be a challenge to kind of recreate company culture without that. Um, so I don't know if that's true, but I I do think there's wisdom in just saying, you know, if you're if you're trying to figure out you know how do you how do you handle your workforce you know don't just rely on the way things are right now just think a little bit more deeply about what you want and what you know about how organizations thrive and you know we all have to come up with a reason for why people are in the office uh other than well that's how we used to always do things but um you know i just think i i think that just resonated with me when she said that that we've gotten through the past couple of years but it, it may get harder that we we're losing some of that um, institutional glue and may have to may have to think about being together more, but but with a purpose. Why are we doing it and, and how do we take advantage of that? Yeah, that's a good point, because from some of the data I've seen, it seems that employees and employers have managed the COVID distancing quite well. But we don't know what it will be like as we continue using up that credit. And we're in a sort of an experimental phase of seeing how we'll manage it. So that's a good point. Yeah. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit here, right? Sure. So you've looked at many pieces of your time at um, the Harvard Business Review. We've spoken about timeless pieces like Michael Porter's and Jensen's piece and so on. What were some of the pieces that stood out for you personally that had a personal impact on you as opposed to just being influential for the broader audience? Well, I guess what I want to be as a leader, let, let, let's say that. I mean, you know, another another enduring piece is Daniel Goleman's piece on what makes a leader. I mean, he, you know, he was the guy who really 
I don't think invented, but 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 popularized the idea of EQ, you know, mm-hmm. of, of sort of emotional emotional intelligence as as opposed to IQ, and that you know some of these um, you know softer skills really are as important as you know basic business knowledge. Yes. Uh, you know, to 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 being an effective leader. So, you know, I thought that was that was ahead of its time, and and that's sort of all anybody talks about now. I mean, that's that's really the the paradigm of leadership now. Um, I, I mean, one article that I always recommend because it's because it was influential to me, and it's a good starter article for people who don't yeah. read HBR is Clay Christensen's not his piece, not his work on disruptive innovation, yeah. but his piece. You know, how will you measure? your life i've actually read and, that book it's very good yeah and and that started as an hbr well it started as his um his closing lecture to his students every year and then yes. we turned that into an hbr article and then yeah as you say it became a, it became a book um but it really is you know trying to apply discipline to the life you're living you know you only have one and 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 sort of urging people to be as thoughtful about it as they are about sort of the projects that they undertake or the businesses that they run and you know it just had some some moving simple truths you know that it, it's easier to do the right thing 100 percent of the time than 98 percent of the time because once you once you start making exceptions it's over. So it just, you know, it was, a, it was a good inspiration. You know, it's like in the early days of Google when they had, you know, don't be evil everywhere. And, yeah. you know, you can, you can talk about where that went, but it was a good reminder. Yeah. Don't be evil. Uh, and, you know, it's don't a good be reminder. evil all of the time. I think that's, <laughs> yeah, that's what, yeah, they, they, they didn't tell us about the bottom part. Um, and, you know, beyond that. So one other thing, actually back to this sort of shareholder value, I mean, an article that we published that really has meant a lot to me was a piece by, Lynn Payne and Joe Bauer, which was, it was, uh, the title was The Error at the Heart of Corporate, da, 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 I forget the last word, um, corporate strategy maybe, but it, 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 it pointed out why shareholder primacy was not what the law said and didn't make sense in terms of practice. And it was, it was ahead of its time. And, and it just sort of, because again, as I was saying before, CEOs sort of felt like legally, you know, or based on Delaware law, where they're yeah. where most of these companies are based, that they had to absolutely focus on shareholder return, or they were maybe breaking the law, or you know, and and they just pointed out from a, a kind of a legal and a practical value has that you know that's that's not what that this is a this is a trend, and it served us well in it's some ways, but it served us a fad. It served us well in some ways, served us poorly in some other ways, but there are other approaches and and so that that was moving for me also so if it's not shareholder value creation what would be the alternative approaches well that's the problem it, it that's where it becomes hard so 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 Doug McMillan who's the CEO of Walmart and yeah. a guy who thinks about these things a lot i actually saw him yesterday um at an event and he was talking a little bit of, about this and he you know, so for him, the broad stakeholders include his customers, yes. his employees, the community, the environment. And so he just sort of has a sliding scale and he knows he's going to over index sometimes 
in terms of getting it right with his employees. You know, if there's a sense that his employees are underpaid, he's going to devote, you know, devote relatively a relatively large share of resources to them to make that right. And maybe another stakeholder will get a relatively small share. But hopefully over time, you're taking care of all of them, not necessarily at the same moment in exactly the same way, but you're you're constantly looking and addressing where the problems are and and you know over time taking care of all of your stakeholders. So, you know, that's great. That's a great approach. Again, it's not it's not a theory of business. It's really a, a kind of approach that takes a lot of thinking and and adapting and the way one company does it will be different for another company but um again it lacks the simplicity of shareholder value but it's it's an interesting approach to try to make it right with this broad range of stakeholders and i, and I think he's somebody who believes if you don't get it right with with all these people you know eventually you won't succeed that it's not it's not altruism it's not philanthropy it's how to run a successful business for the long term yeah, when speaking to executives, I almost get the sense that many of them see capitalism as driven by shareholder returns as the solution to a problem, when it may be better to think of it as an hypothesis that keeps on changing as we get more and more evidence. Is that a good way to think about it? Well, so what's the problem? So what's the problem you imagine people would be solving? In oh, I don't know what it is, term. but everyone, yeah. I think, has this view that Unless they do this, they are going to be punished by the markets and right. their board of directors. Yeah. And I think that nobody's taking time to think about the problem because they think they have the solution. Yeah. Uh, so I think boards are evolving. I mean, I think you, you put your finger on it when, I mean, boards are in some ways more important than CEOs in terms mm -hmm. of setting direction for company and setting these expectations. And it is true. I mean, we could say, well, all right, share price doesn't matter. It does. And and you will have activist investors who come after you and it will be hard to keep your job if you don't succeed with the, the share value. That's just true. It's just, I think, I think we're learning it doesn't solve all the problems. I mean, you know, the Milton, Fried Milton Friedman wasn't, you know, a horrible person when he said, yes. you know, that business should just focus on business. He, he just thought that's what business does. You know, there are other ways to deal with social problems and, and a successful business, by the way, will pay its staff well, and that will take care of some of these things. But, you know, this is not, this is not for business to worry about. And, and that, that people sort of like that idea for a while. We're just in a different place right now. And I think partly we've just seen that doesn't solve social problems to the extent that we're comfortable with. And, and I mean, this gets into the whole CEO activist era. Oh, I was just about to now. go there. That was yeah. going to be my next question. So I don't know if, you know, you know, is CEO activism good or bad? Well, you know, in some ways it's like, okay, well, why are we asking CEOs to solve social problems? Mm -hmm. So you could say that's not right. But, well, they are because we're feeling that government institutions have let us down, that there's a limit to what NGOs can do. You know, you go to Davos and nothing happens, you know, with, with sort of collaborations like that. Suddenly, you know, employees are pressuring their companies to to do more, to do better. Customers want to buy from companies that are, you know, not only share their values but sort of step up at key moments. So, you know, you can't you can't sit on the sideline. I mean, that that's CEOs have learned if they're silent, their silence will be interpreted for them on Twitter, and that so they've got to step out and figure out. So so that's that's a really tough thing. You know, no CEO wants to get involved in social issues yes. and political issues. That's not what they want to do. But they they cannot avoid it now. 
And in my most idealistic sense, it's like, okay, so these ecosystems, these companies, if you have a CEO who says, look, I want to get it right in terms of diversity, and I want to get it right in terms of sustainability and, you know, inclusion and other things. Okay. So, so, so maybe you've, you've changed the world or improved the world one ecosystem at a time. If governments aren't going to step up and do it, you know, on a kind of broader basis. Yeah. So it's an interesting discussion for me because in my previous life as a strategy partner, I used to work for resources companies. And it was very common for an oil and gas company, a gold miner, an aluminum smelter to move into a country and not just focus on extracting the ore and processing it and shipping it, but building the ecosystem around it, which is schools, hospitals, in some cases, universities. They had no problem getting involved in fixing the social gaps, for lack of a better word, that the government either was unwilling or could not fix themselves. So it's been happening in some sectors for a while, but I think it's just unusual in the United States for companies to take that role. And CEOs don't know how to have that conversation. They don't know how far they can go, how much shareholders will reward them for or punish them. This doesn't seem to be guidelines for CEOs in terms of how far to get involved. It's almost as if they get involved and they wait for the reaction from the press and the consumer, and then they recalibrate. Yeah, I think that's right, um, and that's an interesting example. Um, you know, I, I know there are companies that that you know have have said, you know, we we can't get involved in everything, and you know, if if we're upset, if you know, if if Georgia introduces a law that seems to restrict voting, you know, you know, and we and we make you know widgets, you know, maybe we don't get involved in that one. I mean, you know, you as important as that that will be to some people we just we can't get involved in everything you know if we're if we're but maybe environmental things we do because that relates to our business i mean so so there are some companies that have even come up with sort of formulas and they they sort yes. of put in the data and it kind of spits out you know a, a kind of a, a a ranking list you can't get involved in everything but these are pretty fundamental they're consistent with who you are that makes sense in terms of of what your own like what problem you're creating, you know, if you're, if you're generating a lot of carbon, okay, so, so you should be involved in that issue. Um, but not necessarily every social thing that comes out. It, it's hard though, because you're, you know, your, your employees sometimes want to see you step up yes. when there's some national tragedy or global, tra you know, tragedy, and they just want their leaders to step up and, and say what they, what, you know, the employees need to hear. And that's, it's a minefield. It, it it's tricky just to sort of then try to do the right thing. You try to do the right thing, and then you know half the people applaud it, and half the people suddenly are protesting outside your your doorstep. So um, it's a it's a really complicated world, and and in a world where we're connected and and where there are you know places like Twitter, you know handling it handling something incorrectly will cost you business and and shareholder you know stock value overnight. So um, none of this can get, be ignored anymore. I mean, it's fascinating, but it's challenging. I think it was Porter and Kramer. I'm not, I'm not sure who was the second author who wrote a piece. I think it won the McKinsey Award, which talked about how companies can get involved in social issues if that social issue enabled their business to be more successful. And I can't remember when it was published. It was a couple of years ago. I thought that piece was quite, it presented a very interesting framework for creating guidelines for how companies should get involved in social issues. 
Yeah. But as you said, I, it's very hard to know where the goalposts are. Yeah. So that was that was probably more that was probably about ten years ago. Um, so they used the term shared value. Yes. Uh, and you're right. It was Porter and Kramer, Mark Kramer, and um, yeah. I mean, they believed that um, there were sort of blue oceans um, that could be you know, no less profitable for companies than, than any other investment they might make that would address these sort of social needs um, and, uh, you know, urge companies to look for these opportunities and, and create these ecosystems. And, you know, I, I, that's, I, 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 they can point to examples. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure we've changed the world with that kind of thinking, but, um, but there are, you know, there certainly are, have been some of those opportunities. So in terms of the pieces that have come out from the HBR, have there be any that, uh, and I'll pick my words carefully, haven't as aged as well? Uh, yes. Um, I mean, look, we were we were among the many who wrote about uh, Enron. Yes, I didn't want to bring it up, but I was going to go there. No, no, that's fair. Well, I was before my time, so it's easy for me to <laughs> to sort of be critical. But but you know, so yes, we were among those who 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 thought Enron really had an approach to strategy that, that should be emulated. Um, but before you move on from that, I want to unpack that a little bit. Sure. And I know it's before your time, so you may not know the mechanics of what happened there, but how does an idea like that stand scrutiny for so long? How does it become accepted by so many smart, disciplined thinkers who have access to the books, who can see what is happening? How can Enron have been put on a pedestal for so long? Well, I don't know. I don't know about for so long. I mean, it was, you know, there was that that initial heyday where yeah. there was a lot of hype about the company and, and you know, and the, the, the people who researched the company thought this is the real deal and wrote about it. And it seemed to have the kind of rigor that we Acid require. Life and, strategy, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and it seemed way too complicated for most of us, but, um, we were made to feel stupid for not getting the new the new paradigm. Um, so I think, look, I mean, it's 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 hype. I mean, think of Theranos, think of the yeah. uh, and maybe FTX. I mean, the yes. the people who sh who in hindsight should have known better, who kind of fell for the hype, and you know, we certainly fell for that one. Um, I don't think we ever got GE right. I mean, I think we we over admire. I, I mean, I think Jack Welch is a very comp was a very complicated character. And in some ways, had a lot of wisdom and a lot of soundbite wisdom that that yes. is valuable. Um, but I don't, I don't, you know, we didn't understand sort of the 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 extent to which he was gaming the system while he was CEO, and the extent to which he left a minefield for his successor. Yes. I'm not sure we got it right covering his successor either. So I don't think we've yeah. ever gotten GE right. But you know, in a, in, a, in a more I don't know sustained way. Yeah, you look back on what we wrote about gender, and it's absolutely cringeworthy that, you know, I mean, in the 50s, we published a piece called, you know, Successful Wives of Successful I Executives. That, yes. <laughs> yeah, and it was just, it was really, you know. Well, well, it, it was cringeworthy, but appropriate for the time, right? I guess. I mean, it might have even crossed some lines, but it was, yeah. Can I read a line from it? Yes, so, please, by all means. So basically, this thing said, all right, it is the task of the wife to cooperate in working toward the goals set by her husband. This means accepting or perhaps encouraging the business trips, the long hours of the office, and the household moves dictated by his business. Sounds like career. an episode of Mad Men. 
Totally. And then it gets worse. And it says, as for the husband, quote, he may meet someone who conforms more closely to the new social standards he has acquired while moving socially upward. He may discard his wife either by taking a new wife or by concentrating all his attention oh, wow. on his business. Yeah. So, uh, you know, was that uh, we might have even exceeded what was OK for the times in that piece again 1956 so yeah the, the yeah. good thing is that you're willing to go back and look at it and learn from it yeah i mean again i mean this stuff it, it seems so foreign and distant. Ready, yeah. yeah i mean <laughs> i can't imagine know, that appearing anywhere in the press today i mean we ran a piece about um stock buybacks maybe yeah. you know roughly 10 years ago and um I thought it was a, a great piece. In fact, it won the HBR uh, McKinsey Award, you know, that year. And mm -hmm. it was, it was, you know, everybody says, uh, or, or you know, it's commonly said that stock buybacks are, are you know, are bad for companies. They're, you know, they're not doing um, long-term investment, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So this was really based on research into that. Well, you know, let's look at what what uh, the data really shows. But the author was a guy named. Uh, William Lazonic. Yeah. So it was a piece that like our judges and they're all sort of HPS professors and other other professors and CEOs and things thought it was a great piece and gave it the annual award for the best article in HBR. So I ran into Larry Summers. Shortly after that, I said, you know, you have to write for us again. I said, did you see this piece by Bill Lazonic about stock buyback? He just said, yeah, it was execrable. You know, he just he just yeah. thought it was the worst thing he'd ever seen. So, you know, I the, you know, they're, they're, you know, if you talk to some people, they would call that, uh, you know, a, 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 a recklessly terrible piece that we published. Others thought it was worthy of an award. So sometimes, you know, it really depends on who you're talking to in terms of whether a piece is cringeworthy or award worthy. Yes. Well, Larry Summers is not known to um, keep his thoughts close to his chest. So, yeah, that's <laughs> that's the kindest thing that's ever been said about Larry Summers. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's amazing. So. You know, we've been talking about good ideas and bad ideas, but in my time, I've seen a good strategy often looks a lot like a bad strategy. <laughs> I mean, you know, in hindsight, you can say it's a bad strategy, but I've seen some pretty bad strategies get a 100% vote of confidence from everyone. So in hindsight, we know these things are bad, but how do we go about passing them in the moment? So I don't know. I do not have a sort of easy yes. answer to that at all. And I'm not sure our pages do. I mean, what what we publish over and over again i mean it's it's um i mean i mean to me the most handy strategy framework is ag laffley's you know playing to win mm -hmm. framework that he used it at at uh you know procter and gamble and roger martin was a co-author with yeah. him and, and has done various things on that and you know so so it's just trying to be be disciplined about strategy and you know these little simple things like strategy is about focus strategy is about deciding what not to do you know those sound like little easy sound bites but yes. they're really hard to implement yeah really hard. um and i guess i all i could say is you know if you if you're willing to submit yourself to the discipline of strategy in which you will say no to things that by the way the ceo proposed and everybody liked at one point you know if you're willing to to do that effort and use a framework like that you, you probably your, your chances of success are are higher um but i, I don't know you know that uh, there are amazing strategies where companies pivot and in hindsight you realized wow that was great and then there are probably some where 
the pivot didn't work and you never heard about it again because it, you know, it wasn't so great. So I, I don't know the science other than, you know, you need, you need discipline, you need a good framework. Well, that's where strategy is social science, right? There's no objective measurements. Yeah. Except in hindsight. One of the things that I found very useful when reading, whether it's the HBR or even Financial Times, is that I don't look at what is presented to me as necessarily a solution or a prescription. And I hope the listeners can take this into consideration. I look at it as a series of questions that are being presented by the author or the journalist. And it's my job to use their thinking to answer the questions for myself. And I find that's a much better way of reading the HBR or the Financial Times or whatever it is. Because I don't think that anyone who's publishing in the HBR is telling you that this is the absolute answer. They're giving us their interpretation of the data they've seen. Yeah, so that's a good way to put it. Um, I think, so you, you'll see pieces in HBR that maybe contradict one another. Yes, I love um, those pieces. Uh, well, well, or even that we published something this year and then yeah. two years later we published something. That if you actually put them side by side, they're not the same. I mean, to me, I'm okay with that. I, I you know, to me, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, playing tennis or something. I mean, you know, there there is not one way to hit a backhand, but yeah. as long as you th are thinking hard about that and really focusing on that, then you can have success. You can take a, a couple different approaches. So. So I think I think part of this is, are are you serious about this aspect of business and and thinking about it and, you know I mean now it's all about about testing and data and are you are you testing and getting data and then adapting and so as long as you're focused you you can you can get to success and you don't just have to go one route so so I think that's true, on the other hand you know nobody reads just Harvard Business Review I mean yeah so so we do feel pressure to actually be a little bit more assertive than than you were saying. And, and not to say that this idea is the best idea and there'll never be a better idea, but to kind of give practical takeaways in the pieces we publish. And, it, you know, it's almost easy to make fun of HBR for, you know, three ways to make yes. your life better. But, you know, we get that that signals that there's practical value in what we do and 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 we feel we need to do that because again we're nobody's first read so there people have to feel like all right i'm getting real like actionable insights from this so that you know so so in some ways you know we do say try this and 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 we think we think this can help you um why did you say it's nobody's first read oh well i just meant that it that we don't cover the world you know so you're not so, a newspaper yeah that, that's, that's really what I meant. Yeah. So we're not comprehensive in that way. So we have to offer additional value in some other way. Okay. That makes sense. So Eddie, I really enjoyed speaking to you. I mean, a wonderful conversation. Is there anything you want to add for our listeners before we wrap up? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think there's anything to add. I mean, I, you know, we, we love the fact that we still have an engaged reader base. Um, you know, hundred years after creation, we love the fact that we've outlived most of the companies that we that we yes. write about. Um, you know, as you mentioned before, I used to work for Time Magazine. You know, it was much bigger circulation then, but without the kind of deep engagement that our readers and subscribers feel with with the HBR brand. So that's just really heartening to feel like we're publishing something and people are are. are you know, the sort of lifelong learners who read HBR are are moved by it and and are using it to 
to advance their careers and help their businesses. So that it's, you know, it's been a, it's been a great run for us. Well, I'll leave you with this, Addy, is that I've been reading Time and The Economist since I was maybe 13 years old. And I started reading HBR when I was about 21. But I've kept every copy of HBR and not of Time and The Economist. I think that's the difference between the publications. Interesting. Um, do you ever pull out the old ones? And, and I pull out them? the old ones because they are reference material to me. Yeah. Now, you realize that there's this digital thing and you can search. Uh, yes, I have that as digital. well. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> I do search it. Okay. <laughs> so don't worry. I have okay. all, I just like making notes when I'm reading. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, that, I, I love that. You're not the only one. I mean, uh, you know, the, there are people who, who collect the old editions and, you know, I love that. I love that people have that relationship with this brand. Fantastic. Addy, great to have you on the show. We hope to have you back again soon. Yeah, thanks. Great to talk to you. Take care. Ciao. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. Stay up to date on all of our latest training by signing up for our email updates on firmsconsulting.com. We look forward to helping you develop your strategy, critical thinking, decision-making, and communication skills next time here on the Strategy Skills Podcast.